comments to you today. Um, we can ask, you know, what is Paul doing when he's writing? When he's writing anything, but uh, when he's writing Galatians, and what are we doing when we're reading a book like this? And I'm going to say something very ordinary here, uh, maybe yawn-inducing. But yet, I think it's, it's very important and that we do not overlook it. Uh, when he wrote the letter, he's writing to churches that he's already formed. And they're reading it to these churches. So that Paul is writing to preserve something that they already have. But they're in danger of losing. That is, what is it? Why does he write? We could even ask this about the New Testament. And I think the answer is the koinonia, the fellowship, life in the spirit. In which they've come to experience what he describes as a one family sort of relationship. And this relationship is threatened. And every letter Paul writes is written to preserve, it's meant to preserve something that is already there. The New Testament is written to be read in an already established church. The New Testament does not establish the church. The church is preceded you know, the church precedes the New Testament. The New Testament is preceded by the church. And so the love relationship, the fellowship, renders all that Paul has said as meaningful. This is what's being protected. This is why we do this thing. Uh, love is what renders the community of the faithful meaningful. It's what renders the world as meaningful. Where there is not an already existing love relationship to be preserved, I believe the New Testament is rendered meaningless for us. Reading it will become a pietistic discipline, or, you know, if you're reading it in an uh, academic atmosphere, just an academic exercise. And so we'll miss the whole point of the letter. Where there is no koinonia, no fellowship, no united family, no love. The very point of what is being read is lost. And I think we need to, you know, as we do church together, this is the thing that always needs to be up there. Why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it for the agape love. We're doing it for the fellowship. And the danger is that we will reduce the book, we'll reduce its purpose, or even we'll reduce the church to something beneath this. If we read the letter in the academy, we may be just, it may just be an intellectual exercise. Or if in the church, you know, we read it for a kind of legalistic purpose. The substance of the letter and its purpose is lost to us. Is it if we begin to read with something less than the passionate love and purpose with which Paul wrote, and the presumed love interest of those who first read it. The New Testament, you know, we might call them the temple communities because that's what Paul is thinking of. These places where heaven and earth merge, where the incarnation continues to be realized through the corporate body of Christ. 
where all sorts of people from various walks of life are in fellowship with the one God found in Christ. You know, in Galatia it'll be Jews and Gentiles. This is not an idea. It's not a doctrine. It's not an institution. It's not a man-made group. It's not an academic society. It is made up of a group of flesh and blood human beings who share a new identity, a new way of being. And this way of being is grounded in love and unity. So the Bible is to be read in the church, right? That may not quite get it, maybe because we, we have failed. The problem is twofold. The church has often been reduced to an institution and not a web of communal relations in which we are absolutely dependent upon one another. The institutions, you know, with their hierarchy, their buildings, the drive to incorporate, may not always be incorporating people into a koinonia so much as continually trying to create a koinonia that is in some fundamental way lacking. And as a result, there is simply a corporate, you know, business type structure. So the local church, as we know it, is often not so much a group of people, you know, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer described it, doing life together, as it is one that is controlled by the culture or the prevailing atmosphere of the times. And Paul warns about that. Rather than cultivating its own culture, being a distinct people, a distinct economy, with our own politic, our own, you know, uh, culture of the church, church is sometimes simply a support structure for the culture for the economy, for the politics, or for just for, you know, maybe the American way in this country. The notion that the church is not a distinct culture is just an aid to pursuing whatever the prevailing culture may be. Uh, And that is the modern version of the problem that the Galatians face, right? That is, these Judaizers are saying, well, the church is just more Judaism. It's more Jewish culture. It's more ethnic culture. They're missing the point of the fellowship. So we might ask, who are the Judaizers among us? The church may simply be repeating the problem of the law, the law of sin and death, ultimately, as it's guilty of holding out a form of wholeness and happiness That does not require us to take up the cross and join in a cross-shaped, a cruciform community. So a Judaizing Christianity, an Americanizing Christianity, a Japanizing, that was, believe it or not, it was a problem in Japan too. Simply put, in any culture, if it fails to be a cruciform community, then we're making the mistake that Paul, I think, is writing against in Galatia. The culture which surrounds us is one that compels us to pursue happiness, to achieve wholeness, to be successful, to attain. And the way in which we obtain is through obtaining, I think, what the law or what even an idol holds out, holds out. And, of course, we're describing the perversion of sin. The whole the law itself is thought to hold out an image of wholeness. And that's what these Jews are saying. Oh, you need to follow the law. 
And what the problem is, it does not admit it, admit us to uh, you know, come with our brokenness and admit that no, the law is inadequate. Being an American is inadequate. Being Japanese is inadequate. Like idolatry, the wholeness, the life, the being of the idol is an image maybe that we would attain to, but it's on our own power through the law. And so where Christ is posited as offering the same sort of fulfillment as the idol, the danger is that Christ himself will become just another idol, another means of achieving that is really not the culture of Christ, but the culture of this world. The church is often reduced to just being an aid, you know, not an end in itself. But this is to be an end in itself, right? We are to be a people set apart. Um, we might call this, you know, our discussion today, and, uh, uh, the idea of a kind of resistance to death, or the notion that Judaism, idolatry, or things as they already are, uh, is enough. We deny the reality then of the sl- enslavement to sin, of oppression, of poverty, of reality, really, so as to continue doing you know, what we want to do. And so there is a disconnect in Galatia. There is a disconnect, I think, very often in, in our churches the, between belief and action. What do you really believe? And this is Peter's problem in his confrontation with Paul, right? Peter comes down from Galatia, and this is there in the early chapters, and he refuses to eat with the Gentiles. He's wanting to preach a Judaizing type of gospel, and that's what these false teachers in Galatia are doing. What would be, you know, maybe the power of positive thinking, the health and wealth gospel, the pretense of having it all together. The American, you know, we could describe this Judaizing tendency is always with us. And Paul says, did you receive the Spirit by obeying the law? Did you receive the Spirit through human effort? And I'm paraphrasing here, but this is what Paul says. Are you complete idiots? Are you fools? Christ was clearly portrayed to you as crucified. That's the important thing here. We come then to an alternative understanding of reality. Those who would sell us, Paul says, on the present evil age. This is in 1.4. Don't you know that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this evil age? Not so that he might you know, correct the evil age. Paul says you're dealing, and he uses the word perverse. Perverts. You pervert the gospel. Those who would preach another gospel in 1.7. One that is trying to please men and conform to human expectations. Uh, I'm amazed, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who you him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. He says, which is not really another at all. And that's what we have to be, you know, that's the danger that these Judaizers are there in the church. They're preaching a gospel that's false. And the danger is that they'll believe, that we'll believe and take this false gospel as the true gospel. 
Paul says the false gospel, first of all, it's man-made. But the gospel from Christ, on the other hand, was preached by me. It's not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This isn't just more, you know, philosophy. This isn't just more the culture of the age. This isn't just more Judaism. Paul says the false gospel brings advancement among men. He uses himself as an example. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He had worked himself up to a high position as a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. But he says this understanding will steal your freedom. In 2.5, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. This thing will steal you. It will steal your freedom. He says it's divisive in its refusal to fellowship. It is hypocritical in that those who promote it will act so as to please the powers that be. This is 2.12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, talking about Peter. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. How can you tell that false teachings entered in? Because the false teachers immediately want to split things up. They want to divide. They want to separate out. They want a hierarchy. It is a powerful false gospel in that it seems to be apparently in some circumstances the only logical thing to do. This is Paul, verse 13 of chapter 2. The rest of the Jews joined Peter in this hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, good Barnabas, good, you know, uh, Barnabas who had rescued Paul from, you know, brought him to Jerusalem. Barnabas who was the one who had really rescued Luke and uh, made a, you know, a, a, a true disciple of Luke. Even Barnabas was carried away, Paul says, by their hypocrisy. This is no you know, weak thing that he's describing. He says this false gospel relies on human strength rather than the grace given through Christ Jesus. It will enslave you. It will consume your life. He says if you are going to pursue this way of life, and I'm just quoting Paul here, just go ahead and emasculate yourselves. That's what he says. He, Paul uses very strong language. Because you're a powerless pervert anyway. Now that's Paul, but I'm, I'm extrapolating. He's saying that if you're going to do this thing, there's no life in the law. There's no satisfaction in the idol. This false gospel does not promote unity. 5.15 He says it sets you to biting and devouring one another. And in a passage that sounds much like Romans 7, he says, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, 
and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. And then he describes the fruits of this unspirit. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy in chapter 5. And of course I'm describing the problem, but what is the answer? And the answer is to recognize this gospel from Christ is not from men. This kingdom and way is not from this world. You have life in the spirit, Paul says, in the gospel that we preach to you. That is, this koinonia, this fellowship, is there because of the gospel that we preach. There is a difference then between the sort of thing, the ecstatic attainment, the keeping of the law, and this joining of family, walking by faith, believing in Christ. And Paul will use himself as the example here. He says, you know, I was a persecutor of the church. I was shut up under sin and the law. And he says the gospel frees us. It's not just Jews that have the problem. That's all we need to recognize this is a universal problem. It frees us from that sort of slavery. But what is the nature of that slavery? I think it's that desire that we've just described, you know, uh, the pursuit of the law, self-attainment, uh, advancement of the self, self-empowerment, uh, kind of the health and wealth success, gospel. Well, what is the purpose of the law? And this is part of the book of Galatians. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. That is, the law points us to sin. The law says, well, here is the problem. There is no life in the law. And that's the Jewish mistake. That's the human mistake is to imagine that through law, law keeping of some kind, you know, attaining on the basis of the systems of this world that we can attain salvation. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not only that this thing is outside of us, but Paul's saying the I itself, the very nature of you know, the human subject, needs to be crucified. You need to start over again. The problem is not just out there, but it's in you. I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And if we say that, you know, uh, righteousness comes through what? Being patriotic, being a good American, being healthy and wealthy and wise, you know, whatever. Being a good Japanese. If righteousness comes through these things, we nullify, you know, what Christ has done. The grace of God. So let me repeat, the koinonia, this mundane fact, uh, is the reason the letter is written. And it's not mundane, it's, an, it's, it's a, a, a wondrous reality. The letter is being read in church where there is this already existing koinonia, this already existing fellowship. Paul is writing to preserve it. The New Testament is not written to create the church. 
In some way, this deposit of faith, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's what Paul is saying. I preach the gospel, you receive the Holy Spirit, you have the true gospel. What I am writing, you compare with what you have. In other words, two things come together here. The koinonia has to be in place, the fellowship of the Spirit, the love of Christ, for the New Testament to do the work of helping preserve the bond of unity through the spirit of peace. There is no bond of unity. There is no spirit of peace. There's nothing to preserve. The New Testament cannot do its work. So the Bible is not a book. Galatians is not a book which in isolation from this already existing deposit of faith provides Christ. If Christ is not there in the fellowship, where two or three are gathered together, we can't make him show up, right? We're preserving something that is there in the deposit of faith. And so the danger is that we'll make the Bible the container holding Christ when we are the container. We are the place that Christ dwells. And the danger is we'll reduce Scripture then to a series of propositions, doctrines, and legalize it and will confuse the propositions and doctrines with Christ and slide back into the legalism that Paul is warning about. What is the purpose of Scripture? Paul says in 1 Timothy, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you, because uh, uh, that you will know how to conduct yourself in the family of God. I'll say it again. Why why is the Bible written? That you will know how to conduct yourself in the family of God. You have the family of God? This is the way in which you are to proceed. So he says, why are you deserting Christ so quickly? And how do you desert Christ? Well, by turning to that which is not Christ. Christ is not a proposition. Christ is not in the grammar. Christ is not even a teaching. Christ is not even the teaching and preaching. Christ is not the law. Christ is a person made present to us through the Spirit. So where the teaching, doctrine, and study of the letters of the New Testament are separated from the body of Christ, the koinonia, I believe we separate the letter and the spirit. The spirit and the body of Christ cannot be separated any more than the body and the soul of humans. For we would have the spirit apart from the body. We would have the presence of God apart from the crucified Christ. Do you get what I just said? How do you come to Christ? Can you come to Christ apart from the body of Christ? Can you come to Christ apart from the church? You can't do it. And that's the problem of the Galatians, and I think that's often our problem. We need one another desperately, because it's in one another that we have the fellowship. Our tendency is to individualize the work of God. You know, and that will turn into an oppressive letter that divides and kills, rather than a preservation of unity. If righteousness comes through the law, Paul says, then Christ died needlessly. If righteousness comes through a book, then Christ died needlessly. If righteousness comes through a human word, Christ died needlessly. 
And you could just add on. If righteousness comes through something other than the grace of God given to us in Christ. So righteousness has to do with this covenant relationship. Thus it is faithfulness which Christ gives us. It is covenant faithfulness which Christ gives us. So Paul says I'm writing these things to you. Hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Uh, And he says, this is a a great mystery. He who was revealed in the flesh, he was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, taken up in glory. So there is the household or family of God created by Christ, revealed, you know, God revealed in the flesh. And all scripture is inspired by God, Paul says in 2 Timothy. Why? What do we do with scripture? It's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the men of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. All scripture is not God, nor does it impart the presence of God. The Christ that is present in the family of God is better apprehended so that we are enabled to follow him through Scripture. I'm saying a very simple thing here, but I think it's a very important thing. Where do you apprehend Christ? Where do you see Christ? What is the purpose of reading the New Testament? What is the purpose of our Christianity? It's all to be found here in the fellowship of the saints. So it's not that correct doctrine or a propositional understanding are to be cast aside. It is to say that the difference which Christ makes begins with the resource of this new body, a new way of being. We are literally different. Our being is different when we're baptized into Christ. And given this difference, the resource of Scripture is to protect then what has been given. Um, So Paul says, rejoice, brethren, in 2 Corinthians, that you'll be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of peace will be with you. Um, He says, if those who are of faith, they are the true sons of Abraham. The completion that we find in the body, in the fellowship, It's not the completion, he's arguing, that these Judaizers are positing. Being Jewish or being circumcised or keeping the food laws does not make you a part of the family of God. So, uh, you've heard, Paul says, he uses himself of my former manner of life in Judaism in 1, 12 to 14. I used to persecute the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That is, his zeal for righteousness in the wrong way made him the worst of sinners. I was advancing into Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So the Jews had separated the law from its purpose of covenant faithfulness. That is, we make the mistake that the Jews make if we don't recognize it's the covenant relationship that's been given to us in Christ that scripture then is written to preserve 
And then Paul, you know, this is the whole argument. He does the same argument in Galatians as he does in Romans, using Abraham as the example. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, he says in 3.3. So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so this is Paul's purpose. To show how this revelation is special. It's not mediated by men. It shows us how to escape from slavery. And he'll use the example here of you know the Jews escape from Egypt but this is the escape from the slavery to sin and death um, and we can ask and answer a basic question in Galatians why did Christ die and he says in 1 4 he gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father If you do not understand, this is the meaning of the death of Christ. To rescue us from this present evil age, you've missed the gospel. He's going to deliver us from the sin that so easily besets us. We are going to be justified, and what Paul means by justified is not some don't get blurry-eyed legal on me. He means, no, you're going to be made right in this family of God. You're going to receive the Spirit. You've been redeemed from the curse of the law. And we'll talk about that in chapter 3. He says in chapter 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. That's our danger as Christians. That we'll fall into some unfreedom, some slavery. Is the law the thing? Unfortunately, we have a doctrine of atonement in, you know, divine satisfaction and penal substitution that makes the law the thing. But the cross does not address the category of Gehenna. It does not address the category of, you know, this future punishment, but it addresses the immediate category of living under the curse of the law. Those who make the law primary introduce the curse once again. And that's Paul's point. And then the tendency is to become persecutors of the koinonia through clinging to a disembodied word. That becomes like law in the process. And that's, you know, Paul's the, the key phrase here. I've been crucified with Christ. I am a new subject. Christ died that we might die. He did not die so that we do not have to, but he died that we might take up our cross and follow him. The cross does not put on display the wrath of God, but rather the virtue of Christ to be imitated. As we lay down our lives in the manner that Christ laid down his life for us, we take up the cross that he bore. And this is Paul's picture. Those who do this are, uh, you know, more numerous are the children of the desolate one, of Sarah, than of the one who has a husband. More fruitful are those who, you know, have followed Isaac, the, you know, the child of faith, who he's using as the example. 
So Paul the teacher calls us to this practice of virtue. I beg you, brother, become as I am. Take up the cross I have be- because I have become as you are. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved again? And then the conclusion, neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We are a new creation in Christ. That's my introduction. Let's sing our hymn of